1: Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.
2: There's a lot of opportunities that are going to come from this. I hate to be kind of crass about this because it's so scary right now, but keep your head up. There's things that are going to come and change that you're going to have an opportunity either as an investor to make money or as a business to create something of value.
3: That's Andrew Bush, former Chief Markets Intelligence Officer at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and economist at andrewbush.com here in Chicago, looking at the silver lining for investors amid coronavirus. This is WBBM's In-Depth, where we take a deep dive into a story we are telling on the air. I'm Jennifer Kuiper. This week we are discussing the spread of the coronavirus and the outbreak's growing impact on the daily lives of people across the Chicago area. We'll talk about its effect on restaurants and bars, the travel and hospitality industry, the workplace and financial markets. But first, let's talk about some of the current headlines and how the world is dealing with the pandemic. The Trump administration, in an effort to slow the outbreak, says the public should avoid gathering in groups larger than 10 people and to cancel any discretionary travel. Joining us with the latest on COVID-19, Michelle Cortez, health reporter, Bloomberg News in Minneapolis. First, I want to find out the latest on coronavirus, COVID-19, and how it's spreading, where it's spreading, what you're seeing.
4: So it is still spreading rampantly across the globe. The number of cases are coming down dramatically in China, and they are getting control over it in some places that have been hot spots like South Korea. But we are still seeing very high rates in Italy and other places in Europe. And the concern in the U.S. is that while the levels are low, we're starting to creep up that ramp. We're starting to ramp up. Our number of cases
3: there have been concerns about hospitals if they're ready. I talked to the American uh, Hospital Association. they said yes, we we they are ready. The hospitals started preparing for this weeks ago when they saw it spreading through China and figured that it may very well end up here. Is that the impression that you're getting that hospitals are ready in well, big cities and in rural areas? Hospitals
4: have been preparing for this for years. they prepare for one-off events like the, the bombing in Boston and they prepare for pandemics, the bottom line is, is that nobody knows exactly where it's going to hit or how bad it's going to be. So certainly we're seeing a lot of cases now in Seattle and San Francisco, and in those cases, they have a lot of hospitals, they have a lot of beds, they can move people around if they need it, but if it starts showing up in rural areas, we're seeing a lot of cases in Louisiana, for example, if they don't have the infrastructure in place, there's just no way you can absorb it.
3: Some people have questioned whether there are enough beds, enough respirators. Is that the case here in the the United States or do we need more of something?
4: I think that it's likely in the United States, given all of the steps that the U.S. is taking now to get control of this virus, we probably do have enough beds and ventilators. The problem is going to be whether or not we have enough beds and ventilators and masks in the areas where they're most desperately needed. That's the risk on a location by location basis. It's not something that we can look at across our country. We have hundreds of thousands of beds. We have 100,000 respirators. We have 100,000 ventilators. It seems like a lot, unless you start talking about, you know, 20% of the population getting infected, 5% of them needing to be on a ventilator. That's 3 million people. We don't have anywhere near enough to a uh,
3: accommodate that. Michelle, you have an interesting uh viewpoint here because you have pretty much watched this from almost the beginning and uh, you have taken in so much information. I'm curious as to what you have found most interesting about this virus, the spread and where we are today.
4: Well, the thing that's most terrifying about this virus is how little we know about it. Every time I think that I'm getting a little bit reassured that maybe case counts are coming down in China and we know that it's been around for less than three months. So there's that idea of we can all survive anything for three months. But then you hear something like perhaps if you get infected and you recover from it, maybe you can get infected again right away. We just literally don't know. Or we hear something from somebody who's had the virus and continues to test positive after more than 30 days. So if there are people walking around out there who are infected and they can infect other people for 30 days, that's just terrifying. So the thing that is most concerning to me is just the lack of knowledge. We just we just don't know. And anyone who says anything, is you have to take it all with a grain of salt. I'm just going to keep talking here because um, the thing that's most interesting right now, and I think it's the thing that you're going to start hearing about in the next couple of days, certainly the entire country is doing all of the social distancing. Schools are closed. Restaurants are being closed. There's no sports. There's no concerts. Nothing is is happening in the country and we're all doing that because we're trying to do what's best for this virus and get it under control. But there are serious questions about what does that mean for our economy and for the virus itself, because we don't know that staying home for two weeks is going to submit Significantly slow the virus, or whether it's just going to drag it out for an extended period of time. So we're now starting to get information from modelers who are saying this is what it's going to mean for our economy, and is that a price that the country is going to be willing to pay over the long term? And that's a moral and ethical question that we're all going to have to deal with, and it's only just now starting to come to the to the front.
3: So where are the hotspots now throughout the world? Oh, what's not a hotspot?
4: Certainly. Italy is still really a big hotspot. The most concerning place is Iran because we have no idea what's happening there. They know that there is probably over. Oh, there's some speculation that there's over 100,000 cases there and they can be seeding everywhere throughout the Middle East. And mm-hmm. even though we in the U.S. don't get a lot of travelers from Iran, we do get people from other places. So they could be a font of illness, that it continues to spread throughout the entire world in the U.S., We're seeing the most cases in Seattle. We're seeing in Northern California, San Francisco, and in LA, of course, Boston is big. We're starting to see some really frightening numbers coming out of Louisiana, even Georgia and Florida. Certainly, it looks like Illinois has taken a really strong stand on this and has clamped down. So we're seeing fewer cases than we might have originally anticipated. And also, testing started happening there, but you don't know when it's going to take off. You just need that virus to land in one frightening spot in one hospital or nursing home before your cases go through the roof.
3: That's how the virus is spreading its impact and the global response. Now let's bring in a doctor to discuss the coronavirus and what we know, how it has changed, the types of symptoms it causes, groups that are most at risk, and best practices from contracting and spreading the virus. Joining us is Dr. Jennifer Grant, infectious disease physician with North Shore University Health System in Chicago. Doctor, tell us first, what are the symptoms of coronavirus COVID-19?
0: So COVID-19 is primarily a respiratory infection. The biggest symptoms that we're seeing, or I should say the most common symptoms that we're seeing are fever and cough, as well as symptoms like shortness of breath, potentially sore throat, flu-like symptoms, feeling achy, fatigued, having joint or muscle aches, things like that.
3: What is the clue that, uh, because you're dealing with the flu season now as well, so that's a challenge. So if someone comes in with flu-like symptoms, how do you know that, or do you think that maybe this isn't? Flu, this might be COVID-19. Is it really just through testing?
0: Yeah, that's true. There is not a good way that we can just look at a patient and say you have the flu or you have COVID-19. Um, we have testing now we do have and we have had rapid flu testing for a long time. So sometimes it's easy to take that first step to rule in or out the flu before taking the next step to decide whether we need to think about um, COVID-19 as a cause of the patient's symptoms.
3: How is this transmitted? There have been a lot of people who think it, it may be transmitted one way, but it's not. It's, so let's just clear the air on this one. How, how is it transmitted?
0: So the primary mode of transmission is through respiratory droplets meaning a person who is sick, who is infected with COVID-19 is coughing or sneezing and spreading these droplets into the air and other people nearby are breathing them in. Um, These droplets can also land on surfaces. So there is potentially a way to pick up the droplet and kind of get it into your mouth or your nose, Things like that.
3: Has it mutated? I mean, we saw this break out in China and then start spreading across the globe. And now it's here in the U.S. Has anything changed since it first broke out? I wouldn't
0: say mutated in that sense. No. You know, we think we're pretty much dealing with the same virus that we've been dealing with. We're using the same genetic sequence for our testing as what they found in China. So I wouldn't say that it's mutated.
3: How about who's most at risk?
0: Our most at-risk populations are our elderly patients, those with underlying medical problems, those who have compromised immune systems.
3: Is our health care system ready? I talked to the American Hospital Association. They said, yes, that uh, that there are plans in place for epidemics. And when this started in China weeks ago, that the industry, uh, various hospitals started pulling out their policies and started amending them and, and taking a look at what the CDC was saying about this. So what you, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Oh, yes. Everybody is working very hard to to be ready and to keep up. I will say that there are emergency preparedness committees at hospital plans that have been in place for a long time for these scenarios that are being activated. And everybody is pulling together to, you know, get ourselves ready for this.
3: I'm curious as to your thoughts on the virus um, from when it started now it's here in the U.S., how it's spreading and how it has spread and what you when you watch what has gone on. What are your thoughts as someone in the medical field?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think we've all recognized that this is a very rapidly changing situation. There are still a lot of things that we don't know. It is a virus that. Can be more severe than influenza, so we definitely want to make sure that we're on high alert. We're detecting it when we can. We are protecting our communities, our patients, and our healthcare workers. Um, I think it is definitely, as we've all kind of acknowledged, that it's um, a big problem that we are addressing, and but we're working very hard to to do that to keep you know everybody safe from all levels of government, public officials, to the hospitals, to even people in our communities that are, you know, going the extra distance to kind of to help out.
3: And I didn't ask you this, but I want to make sure that I follow up with this as far as treatment. What would the treatment be for someone with Uh, COVID-19 with someone who does not have an, uh, an underlying condition and someone who does?
5: The
0: treatment right now is primarily supportive. There are investigational treatments that are being studied and being moved through the pipeline, but as of now, nothing is formally approved by the FDA to treat this. So we manage patients um, by supporting their breathing, giving them oxygen as needed, monitoring them for other complications, things like that. The vast majority of patients um, that contract COVID-19 are not hospitalized, and they are you know, they're managing themselves at home like they would with any other flu or cold-like
3: syndrome. With the medical perspective on all of this, Dr. Jennifer Grant, infectious disease physician with North Shore University Health System in Chicago. Great advice. Economies around the world are feeling the direct impact of the fast-spreading coronavirus. Let's bring on Andy Bush to discuss the economic fallout. Andrew is former Chiefs Markets Intelligence Officer at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and economist at andrewbush.com here in Chicago. Andy, the markets, its it's been a mess. I mean, what, what are we looking at here? What can we expect in the weeks to come? I mean, there are changes every, I'd say every day, but sometimes it's every hour.
2: Yeah, and I think what the market really didn't like was the press conference, again, uh, giving us an understanding of where the federal government stands on the coronavirus. And I think particularly they didn't like what President Trump had to say, when he was, I have a feeling very honest in his appraisal of how long this is going to go on for, because they asked him, when do they think it's going to be over? And he said, July and August. Now, that is much different from where I think most of the market was looking at. And I'd say, you know, typically when it comes to the financial markets, and especially with stocks, you know, when you're looking at an earning stream of a company and trying to figure out what it's worth, you're usually looking out five to 10 years, you know, with that arrow. Now it's almost hour to hour on what's gonna happen with that company. And so it's super volatile, and today is a wonderful example of that. Overall, I would say that um, most of the estimates I'm starting to see when you shut down an economy, or at least try to limit interactions of people to just 10 people uh, as a group, you're gonna see a significant contraction in the United States in, in the second and third quarter now.
3: That's pretty late, Andy. And and how do you recover from something like that? How long does it usually take? I mean, when we go through a a bear market like this, how long does it usually take to recover and and get things back to what we'd like to see?
2: What I would say is this, is that people need to start to think about how this is going to dramatically change the way they do business and how the economy looks, because I don't think we're going back to the old way anytime soon. So what does that mean? Well, just start to think about how you're going to change your behavior, because I think this coronavirus is going to be around for some time. It'll be 12 to 18 months. Maybe it'll be shorter. That would be great before we get a vaccine. But even if you get a vaccine, then how many times are we going to go through something like this? I don't know. But my guess is the initial reaction from one to three years out will be a significant change and a significant change in the way that society operates in an economy. And I'm I'm looking at a lot. There's a lot of opportunities that are going to come from this. I hate to be kind of crass about this because it's so scary right now. But keep your head up. There's things that are going to come and change that you're going to have an opportunity either as an investor to make money or as a business to create something of value.
3: And I'm curious as to what you think of the Fed rate cut and what other tools does the Fed have at this point?
2: Well, as most people have said, rightfully so, that the Fed can't cure a health care crisis, but it can sure increase the amount of liquidity into the financial system. Now, there's been problems in the commercial paper market and in some of the bond trading Uh, markets as well. The Fed flooding the markets with that will help. But if you go back to 2008, the Fed stepped in and one time uh, backstopped all of the commercial paper market in the United States, and people forget that they did that. It's just one other tool that the Fed can use to calm people down in this time of stress. So just when people say, oh, the Fed can't solve this or the Fed can't do this, the Fed can do a lot to get the markets to be functioning and moving forward. And I, I just want to reiterate that that's so important. They have a lot more tools in their toolbox besides just flooding the market with, with uh, liquidity, which is great. But they can also backstop a lot of these markets and especially the commercial paper market.
3: Are the banks stronger these days? I mean, back in the recession, they had to go uh, after the recession, they had to go through the stress tests. Are they in much a much better position than they were back then to to weather something like this?
2: Without question. And that's the good news. So this is not going to be a financial contagion, at least initially, because the banks have so much excess capital. And all those stress tests that they did are part and parcel of the changes that occurred under Dodd-Frank in 2010. But of course, they're going to be hurting because Why? Look at the industries that are impacted, airlines, hotels, leisure, restaurants, bars, anything in the entertainment space. I mean, when you shut down meetings for two months or three months, whatever it's going to be, eight weeks is what the CDC uh, offered as a suggestion. Those industries are going to be negatively impacted. You're going to have a lot of people unemployed through that time frame uh, if companies act aggressively. And what does that mean? That their ability to pay back loans is going to drop You know, pretty significantly. And the entire economy, if you go into recession, is under duress. So banks, while they'll be okay and get through it, they're still going to lose a lot of money if that occurs
3: overall impact, your impression of all of this? Yeah, I think
2: for this quarter, we're going to see a negative GDP print somewhere north of three and a half percent, maybe to four percent. And and if people do not follow the guidelines of what the president has said, uh, what Dr. Fauci said from NIAID, um, what the CDC has put forward, if, if millennials don't go along with this, um, it's really going to continue on for a lot longer than it needs to. Now, if people follow it, um, you'll see the third quarter not be as bad as the second quarter, and then it will start to um, smooth out. Again, as everybody said, you're, not trying to, you're trying to eliminate that huge spike in infections and smooth the infection curve out. So uh, that's what our goal is. But what I will warn people right now is that you're going to see a lot higher infections in the United States as more and more people get tested. By the end of this week, we'll know much better what this is going to look like.
3: That's the overall economic impact. Let's turn our attention to the workplace and see how companies are navigating this new environment, one that includes a lot of people now doing their jobs remotely. Joining us, Rick Cobb, Executive Vice President, Challenger Gray and Christmas here in Chicago. This is certainly a new frontier for business. What is the biggest challenge for companies, Rick, now that they are preparing for something that they haven't really had to prepare for and something that could go on for quite some time?
6: Well, there's multiple. I don't know that we can pick one. The first one's going to be uh, supply chain if you need it. It's hard to get right now, and we we already have a backlog of need. Uh, That runs parallel to the idea that you can't have your workers in your facility. Uh, You're minimizing the amount of contact. Some companies, technology companies, have understood that for a while and, and have the protocol for that. There are a lot of companies that really have never done remote work, then of course, if you have to touch products because you're a manufacturer, uh, a hotel, a restaurant, uh, I really don't know what you're going to do.
3: Most interesting work solutions that you've seen, um, some things that people, the companies have not had to deal with.
6: I don't know that it's an interesting thing other than the, the idea that for the first time, companies are forced to embrace the remote worker idea. And so those that have done it have already done some of the research. And so what we know is that typically your productivity increases by somewhere between 10 to 15 percent. The cost to do business goes down because uh, you're not paying for heating and air conditioning in offices, electricity, et cetera. The part that people don't really understand, though, is that the downside for remote workers, counter to what we say, which is the, the refrigerator, the bed and the television, is really loneliness, you know, the social interaction opportunities that aren't there. So what's happened with those that were first into the remote working environment is they recognized they had to build ways to have camaraderie and interaction with their employees. Now with, you know, with a virus where you can't actually physically interact, that's more difficult. But you have to create non-business interaction uh, with your employees to help them stay connected and feel part of the culture. And that's been the – that's the next – level of of uh, of of efficiency when you're talking about remote workers
3: how do you do that what are some suggestions for companies to keep up the morale
6: sure well the you know there's a there's a tendency for all of us in work to just worry about work so we do our job and then if you've done it i'm not going to talk to you and if you haven't done it then i'll call you and tell you that you haven't done well Um, so it's not necessarily unique. It's just good management. But the idea of actually interfacing with people and telling them when they have done good work, acknowledging that, acknowledging performance, and and also sharing uh, sharing information with people on uh, a web call where you have more than uh, more than one or two people on. You have departments. You have communities, and then finding things that they have in common and interests. Obviously, you know we've talked for years about the uh, lost productivity. From uh, March Madness, which isn't going to happen, from uh, fantasy football, which probably won't going to hap- isn't going to happen. Like finding things that people have in common that they can they can uh, collaborate around. Um, finding a, a charitable uh, effort that the the business community your company can support, and then s- solving for that. And I think the other part that's going to be really useful is for people to is rather than management try to solve the problems and think from the top. Solicit the ideas from from down up. Uh, There are some companies that have had sort of a digital community uh, lunch break and you might be the the mailroom uh, person in in Thailand. And if you've signed up for that call, you might have a 15 minute conversation with theoretically the CEO. Uh, So you learn more about the people in your organization worldwide, those sorts of things.
3: What advice do you have, Rick, for those who find themselves working from home for the first time? Yeah
6: there's there has to be um, th- so you need to understand what your work responsibilities are and and what needs to be done um, but the part that is unique is you're not necessarily held accountable to a nine to five unless you are by if you're you know teleconferencing you maybe you're required to do that but in general you can work you can unbundle your work you can do your work when you feel the most productive if you if you have a need uh to attend to child care or some chore at home you can work that in but just understand that the work that needs to be done is unbundled from hours it's attached more to uh, productivity within a frame so if i have if you have projects that have to be done by the end of the week you have to manage your time accordingly to get them done at the end of the week. If you get them done early, you could take on more, or you you have more free time to do other things. Um, oh, go ahead.
3: Oh no, go. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
6: Well, I think I think as as I said before, the refrigerator, the the TV, and the bed have been the culprits. Uh, I think the social interaction piece of that um, is important too. There are some people who have a tendency, tendency to just work through until they sort of fall over. Oh, geez, I've been sitting for seven hours. So you have to you have to set timers or give yourself some breaks periodically. If you're in an office you'd get up once in a while and walk around, you might go talk to somebody else. You have to think about that theoretically and say okay, I would normally get up and go chat with somebody. I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to get up and perhaps walk around my home while I talk to a friend or a coworker.
3: Could the changes that we are seeing put in place now due to coronavirus stick and when this all wraps up?
6: Oh sure. It's, you know, it, it's bound to happen. You know, when, when organizations, companies, and businesses are forced to adapt by circumstances, uh, those adaptions that turn out to be uh, beneficial to the company will remain. Um, so those positions, which cannot be – those jobs that cannot be performed now uh, due to the coronavirus uh, pandemic – um, if they're resolved by automation, I hate to say it, but that that probably will stay in place. Uh, there are plenty of, of organizations who have automation in parts of the world, but not every part of the world. Uh, kiosks for retail, that kind of thing. And if those work, and, and you can still do your business, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't require that you have a, a human employee doing the work, that will probably stay in place. We also think that the interaction between people um, is going to have to change. those that have yet to become comfortable with virtual interactions, Skype calls, uh, GoToMeeting, WebEx, uh, teleconferencing, they're going to have to adjust to that. Um, and the infrastructure around that, the the uh, the, the, the the wireless communication systems, those that provide the most stable environment to do that business are the ones that are going to win.
3: Beginning this week, restaurants and bars in Illinois will not be able to serve customers inside their establishments, leaving only food delivery and pickup as options. With us to discuss what this all means is Frank Ruffalo, owner of Il Culicino Restaurant in Chicago. Frank, let's talk a little bit about the restaurant industry, what you've been going through, and uh, these are some unprecedented things that we've seen. So I'm curious, tell Absolutely. us tell us a little bit about where you're located and what you do.
5: So we have four locations. Um, one of them, the most prominent one that's been hit the hardest, is Il Culicino. Um That is at Cermak in Indiana, so directly across from the Wintrust Arena and McCormick Place. Um, so a large chunk of our business is strictly conventioners and large crowds. So right now, um, when they came out with this scare about two weeks ago, we started to see the cancellations. Um, a week back we saw a drastic drop and right now we are at um, you know going all the way till mid April we are completely canceled on everything besides the 14-day quarantine that the, the government put in where they had to, to close down um, the restaurants to service so right now we're kind of converting everything to curbside and delivery whether that be in-house um, along with third-party services we're selling e-gift cards at most of our locations, um, but obviously that's not the large part of our business. That's not the model we're in. Um, so people, when they're thinking of a delivery or a carryout, they might not naturally think of going to a fine dining Italian or one of our breakfast and lunch places and, and anything like that. So it's it's tricky, and we're just trying to, to measure it and see you know what makes the most financial sense to do right now.
3: Did you ever think that the governor would come out and say, we are going to close restaurants to diners and you can only do um, this curbside and this delivery or, or a pickup?
5: You know, what? I, I didn't think that was far out of the realm of possibilities. Um, obviously, we kind of saw the writing on the wall where people weren't going out in general. Um, but even though, you know, you think that might happen, it's hard just to come to the realization because we're employing so many different people at each of our locations. Um, don't get us wrong. This will hurt the restaurants and a lot of them might not be able to sustain it but what do you do with the staff that you have some of the staff at our locations have been with us for 30 years Um, so obviously we're still going to do what we can to keep them around and and keep a paycheck coming in but for how long are we you know supposed to be able to do that how long can you actually do it that's the tricky part so I didn't really think it, it would come to that point but As a business owner, you know, running the numbers, you see why. And, and, you know, you understand that it will make some um, financial sense and it will make sense for, you know, the health of our community as a whole.
3: So you started losing the convention business first and then this restaurant thing kicked in, the limitation. At what point did you start to think we we may need to come up with a plan here?
5: Um, You know what, I I think that was coming down to, you know, like I said, about two weeks ago, once we saw the conventions were dropping, um, and then, you know, this past week with with this news coming out, our our neighborhood locations are also feeling that where the weekends are down 25, 30, 40 percent. That's when you kind of think, okay, how can I go, one, to a skeleton crew? to try to do something where I can keep staff on, whether that means they're coming in strictly to clean and and sanitize everything, Um, if I use them as delivery drivers, if I can give them admin tasks, um, so that's kind of been the, the process we've been going through this past weekend and, and up to, uh, you know, the, the current moment. So we're, we're still kind of coming out with a plan that's going to work um, and we're reevaluating it day by day to see what makes the, the best move for us.
3: And Frank, are you worried about if you do have to let go some staff, trying to get back that staff when things turn around and start picking up?
5: Absolutely. Um, don't get me wrong. I think it is kind of a better situation because this is across the board where it's not like they can go to another restaurant or, you know, another place down the block. But I understand people are going to have to make decisions based on their own financial um, status so some people might not be able to go two weeks without a check or go with uh, the the small hours I'm going to be able to give them so that's going to be a a very challenging task because the labor pool right now is tight to begin with Um, so those people that you have you want to hold on to them and and make sure that you know they're satisfied and, and they're doing a satisfactory job but if they have to go somewhere else You're absolutely right. That's something we're going to have to worry about. Are we able to get them back? What can we do to incentivize them? And what can we do to carry them through this time?
3: At Il Culicino, you also underwent uh, some some work. You added a a patio or deck or something, correct?
5: Yep. So we just opened in August. Um, Part of that plan was to put on a retractable roof. Um, and, and wall system that will act as our private event space. So on top of just, you know, the struggles of opening up a new restaurant, we just completed this renovation that was booked starting this Monday till um, mid-April. So that's something else that we're kind of playing with right now is what else can we use that space for? Um, what can we do to, to keep something going? And, and obviously it's a large room, and, and with these new restrictions on capacity, there's not much you can do. But can you use it as storage? Can you use it as prep? Can you use it as a, as a meeting space for the staff to come in? Um, we are offering them to come in if they have to use the space to, you know, do some clerical work or, you know, just get out of the house for a little bit. But naturally, we don't want to go against any, you know, government restrictions on what they're saying.
3: Frank, at what point do you really start worrying about how how long, at what point, if this drags on, do you think, uh, um, you know, it's going to get I really become,
5: tough? Yeah, if they want to extend this past the, the deadline, that's when I, I get, you know, more frantic than we already are. Um, not sure how long into the foreseeable future this is going to go on but obviously if they say okay the 31st you can open back up to the public i don't envision people running out and and going right to restaurants you know they still might be some skeptics in there um so you know we'll we'll have to see and play it out i just hope that um this does not go longer than what they're you know uh, predicting and then it just kind of will work its way out everyone's going to be able to, to go through it um, that this this craziness of people running to stores and, and not wanting to, to um, have contact with people that hopefully that will help us with something um, and we're able to come to a solution in the near future
3: and that deadline is march 30 another sector really taking a hit is the travel industry including the airlines the virus is now forcing u.s air carriers to consider a once unthinkable possibility stopping flights in the u.s we also got word this afternoon that President Trump pledges to backstop airlines 100% in coronavirus response. Joining us with the latest is Joe Schwederman, professor of public services and director of the Chattuck Institute at DePaul University. Joe, you've been watching this play out through you know, through the beginning, I guess you could say, when, it, when this virus started spreading through China and uh, seeing what it did to the airlines on a global scale, but what do you think about what you're seeing now?
7: Yeah, today was really uh, a landmark uh, a Scary day in many ways, we saw United announcing you know fifty percent flight cutbacks, and that 's you know pretty much shutting down a big core of the airline and we have never seen anything quite like this before nine eleven of course there 's a lot of analogies there but that was somewhat different in the sense that everything 's grounded, and the airlines could build back gradually now they 're just operating in a complete uncertainty as to whether there 's going to be any demand for the next few weeks to justify even operating that limited schedule uh United thinks you know 20 30% of their seats uh, only may be full Oh, that's not sustainable. This is a, a tough time.
3: Could we see the once unthinkable halting flights within the U.S.?
7: Right now, it looks like we're going to escape a total shutdown. Now, that would have all kinds of effects, even for healthcare care workers trying to get around the country. Um, I think, though, we're probably looking at another round of cuts that are likely going to happen. Uh, you could envision some sort of travel restrictions around the country that could uh, lower demand even more. Uh, with, you know, only uh, essential travel required, that sort of thing. Uh, we're not there yet, but uh, I will say that uh, uh, right now we're still seeing more and more bans of uh, retail and restaurants and so forth take effect. So we're not, uh, we may not have seen the worst of it yet.
3: And what about, you You can't even say that any one airline has hit hardest, can you? Because it really is industry-wide. I mean, everybody, a lot of travelers, who booked with various airlines have canceled no
7: question, and I think the uh the one area we haven't seen much response yet is from the ultra discounters and we're really talking about spirit Allegiant, and frontier you know bark and basement uh Leisure travelers, and they're at the moment not waiving uh, restrictions. They're running, uh, at least as of this morning, a most more or less a full schedule. And that's just that can't continue because people want out. They want to be able to cancel, and so they have to make some hard decisions. You know, United, uh, Delta, American, Southwest, which have a lot of business travel. Uh, they depend on a lot of last-minute bookings to fill those flights, and those bookings just aren't happening, whereas some of the other carriers' people book way in advance. So it's a different animal, but every airline, no doubt, is going to uh, have a tough week here.
3: What do you think of President Trump saying that he will back the industry? Because the industry is already asking for a bailout. You
7: know, we're starting to see uh, that uh, 9-11-style bailout talk, and I think one thing that would trigger uh, uh, that sort of, policy pressures, the federal government orders more flights uh, grounded or restricts travel even more. So when it's the federal government preventing people from buying tickets, Uh, there's clearly some sense of moral obligation to help the carriers that are affected. Right now, most of the restrictions pertain to people who have been either European citizens or been in in European-affected countries in China and so forth. Um, But we could start to see even more restrictions uh, of cruise travelers and so forth. And when that happens, you, you almost have to have and understanding with the airlines, and we're not just going to let you uh, fall off the cliff financially. Uh, that's uh, got to happen soon.
3: Well, that's interesting. The president came out and talked about supporting the airlines, but what about the cruise lines and others? I mean, do you do you think there may be more bailout requests from others in the travel industry?
7: You know, my sense is if this thing is mostly a two-week, three-week uh, uh, crisis, and then traffic gradually builds up. The big airlines could certainly survive this. Um right now there's no indication that, you know, in three weeks life is gradually gonna to return to normal. And if we start to see that, that, you know, these bans are gonna be extended, I think uh just the staying power of some of these airlines is really gonna be challenged. Probably not the big three, not Delta and American or even Southwest, but the smaller ones, uh you just can't hang on that long with uh with no revenue stream. Uh cruises, of course, we just saw in the last day, uh there's more risk of booking a cruise. They're going to be quarantined, so I think that market is going to be uh, non-existent for a while. So um, I think by the end of the week we're going to see a discussion in Washington if there's some sort of a financial bailout for the airlines. Uh, but boy, that's uh, that's not something that uh, uh, anybody could see coming.
3: Joe, is this something that you can use to uh, to teach, to learn from, and and teach on for future? Oh, well, we hope there's nothing like this in the future, but uh, down the road, let's say. Well,
7: the, yeah, this is a whole category of risk we haven't seen before. And I, I suppose, I mean, in a, in a somewhat scary way, this is comparable to some sort of a imminent terrorist threat where nobody feels safe uh, out in public, uh, or particularly traveling in crowded environments. And we really haven't seen a service disruption due to that. Really, after 9-11, it was somewhat of a different uh, situation where there was enhanced screening at the airports. People were fearful along security lines, weren't in the mood to travel after it. Uh, of course, terrorism was in the background, but they didn't feel particularly unsafe uh, just being at the airport, which right now we have uh, those kind of problems. So the whole new category of risk that airlines are going to have to look uh, in the mirror and realize that uh, – Uh, maybe some of their bullish projections were uh, uh, unsustainable given that we have a new reality right now.
3: Thanks for joining us for this week's WBBM in-depth podcast. Join us next week as we continue to monitor the coronavirus outbreak and its impact on Chicago. Be sure to subscribe to receive this free podcast every Wednesday. And of course, listen anytime for the stories that matter by listening to WBBM on the radio.com app or on your radio. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jennifer Kuiper.